Um, so yes, so let's jump into the text for today. So we will be in Ephesians chapter 1, from verse 1 to 2. If you don't have any Bibles, uh, please get one from the ushers that are coming down the aisle. If you don't have a Bible, please keep it. Uh, if you know someone that needs one, please uh, grab one and take home to them. So we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Basically the same verses we looked at last week. And I'll do a little recap and then we'll jump into it. Alright. So Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 to 2. Let me quickly read that. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much again for just this time being able to sit at your feet. Our prayer today is that you will come teach us. You will come open our eyes to the truth of your words, to your love. And you will meet us where we are and with different things we struggle with and the challenges we are faced with. That you will truly open our hearts to receiving from you. And I'm praying that you will speak to us where we are. You will meet us where we are. And, and continue to draw us into your loving embrace. And, and continue to remind us that you are the primary actor in our lives. And that you are sovereign. And that you love us. So Lord, please come speak today to every single one of us that is here, including me. Uh, let it be your words that come out, God, not me. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians um, chapter 1 from verse 1 to 2. So uh, the title there is a little long, but bear with me. Uh, so the idea is we are being recentered on God, and today we will be focusing on our identity in God. All right, so but before I jump in, what I want to do is give a little context, a brief recap from last week, because some of the uh, materials are built upon that, and then we jump into the text. All right, so. Uh, we, we talked last week that the book of Ephesians actually wasn't directly written to the church in Ephesus. So that location wasn't initially there. right? And so uh, what we conclude or what theologians conclude about is that it was probably written uh, to, to a, bunch of, uh, a bunch of churches in southwestern Asia Minor. And then it was later attributed to the uh, church in Ephesus. right? So, But basically the idea there is that Paul wrote this book while he was in prison, right? Which should in some sense sort of jolt us, right? Uh, You're in prison. uh, Death is probably coming. And rather than thinking about how you get out of prison and maybe how you get a retirement fund, because I'm sure you didn't have any. um, But his heart is still about uh, the doctrine of God. His heart is about sharing God with people, right? Uh, So that, that also says something about how he sees himself. What his identity is, and we'll get into that. But basically, Ephesians was probably written at the same time as the the Colossians book, as well as Philemon, and he he wrote Colossians in response to a heresy that was ongoing at the time in the church about principalities and deities and whatnot. And after responding to that, and you see how he dealt, he deals with that in Colossians, and Colossians one fifteen, he starts talking about the supremacy of Christ. He probably then is reflecting, again, as a man that knows that his end is probably near at some point, he probably is reflecting and then he writes Ephesians from this place of deep reflection. 
And, and so you see that Ephesians is primarily about worldviews, right? He is setting, is setting, it starts off by basically just laying out the Christian worldview and then our place in it. So I, I, there's a quote up here that I want to read that sort of summarizes the letter, which says, uh, the letter, which is Ephesians, was written to encourage Gentile Christians to appreciate the dignity of their calling with its implications not only for their heavenly origin and destiny, but also their present conduct on earth as those who were heirs of God sealed with the Holy Spirit. So basically what you can draw from that is Ephesians, in a sense, is actually centered on our identity as Christians, which is what we'll be focusing on today. So last week we started out by saying, if we are to ever take growth in Christ seriously, right, repentance has to be uh, almost like it has to be a consistent feature in our lives, right? And when we say repentance, we mean actually turning away from other things to turning to God, right? So the reformer Martin Luther, which I believe there's a quote that comes up now, also helps us by saying, that our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its sake. Now, this is our nature, and this is why repentance is a, has to be a consistent feature in our lives. And into this reality comes God, right? Really before this reality, right? We talked about how God has been deliberately working uh, to the point of bringing us to himself, right? There's a deliberate action by God and how God is the primary actor in our lives, right? And, and the goal that God has for us is conformity to his image, right? So this is all what we talked about last week. Now, if the goal God has for us is conformity to his image, then that's our purpose. Right? You could say that's our destiny, in a sense. Right? And nothing else will suffice. Nothing else is enough. Right? And, and so the point today, what I'm trying to do today, is given that worldview, that perspective, that idea that God is the primary actor in our lives, and he walks to bring us to conformity to his will, what then is our identity? Where do we find ourselves in all of that? And how does that begin to shape how we live? Right, so that is the goal today. So basically the structure of the message is I'm going to draw out one main point, which is our identity and what that is. And I'm going to draw out three implications of that. And then I'm going to talk about two things we could practically do. Right, uh, if we have time, we might do an exercise. If not, we'll shove that. Right, but basically that's the idea. Right. So again, Paul kicks off Ephesians by describing the worldview that Christians should have. So basically, Ephesians chapter 1 to chapter 3, maybe into chapter 4, he's basically talking about just worldview in terms of his theology, his perspective of God and who we are in that. Right. And then he segues, he also talks about our location or our place within that worldview. Right, and then chapter 4 to 6 basically talks about how we should live. He basically prescribes a couple of things. Right. So again, last week we, we concluded that God is the primary actor in our lives. Right. When you would read Ephesians 1 to 2, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, you see that Paul is an apostle, but an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God 
to the saints, those that are called apart and set apart by God for God, and to those that are faithful in Christ Jesus. So you see that in all of that, God is the primary actor of our lives. And it's based on that that we're going to draw out this idea of identity and who are we and who are we called to be. Right. And when I speak of identity, to, to be clear, what I'm trying to capture there is the core of who we are, right? the, the essence of our being, uh, the, the foundation from which our lives flow. Right? That's what I'm trying to capture when I speak on identity. And, and this is probably best seen not in how we answer the question, who am I or what is your identity? It, it's probably best seen is in how we live in the actions of our lives, right, in, in the trajectory of our lives and in basically what we see of ourselves. So anyway, let me jump into this. So verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. When you look at just verse 1, Paul starts out by identifying both himself and the recipients in lieu of their relationship with God, right, Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints, right? And those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You see that the identification he gives is in relation to who God is. Not in relation to their status or what they're doing. Not in relation to where they are in life. No, not about their age or their gender or whatnot. It's, it's all in relation to God. Right, And for Paul in particular, being an apostle and one that was appointed to that office by God, what I want to draw out from just that first part of that statement is that while Paul is an apostle, you could say it's what he's called to do, right? Uh, the force behind that, though, is God. Right, So it's not as much about what Paul is doing, it's as much about who he is. In God, and we'll see that, right? And so what gives meaning to who Paul is, is God. Just like what gives meaning to who we are, who we are called to be, is God. Again, not our actions, not our goals or ambition. It always goes back to God, right? And so I also want to say that the key point I want to draw from this is that the weight of Paul's identity is actually not the word apostle, right? Which you could say as, oh, it's a, it's a position of authority and all of that is, you know, lifted up, all that stuff. But the weight of who he is is actually on the action of God. It's actually grounded in who God is. The second part of verse 1 that says, to the saints, right? And I want to sort of hunker down here a little bit. So we, we talked last week about the word saints doesn't mean that we are morally upright and we are great and we're doing everything the right way, right? That, that's not what that word means. What it actually means is that we have been set apart by God, for God. Like we have been separated unto him, right? So there are a couple of things I want to highlight with that because the word saints uh, first and foremost identifies who we are now, because of our relationship with Christ. And it illustrates two things that I want to point on. First, it's a privilege to be called by God. Right? It's a privilege to be set apart by God, which shows you the love God has for you. Which shows you that you matter to God. One of the implications we talked about last week was that you mean much to God. Right? You're just not some 
creature he's fond of in his mind. Say, yeah, let that person just exist. No, it's that you mean much to him. And that's one of the implications here. Again, and all of this would tie into our identity. The, the second thing, though, is that the word saint speaks to our purpose. We have been called or set apart by God for God. Right? We, we are not simply called or set apart for ourselves or what we want to do or the goals we have. We have been set apart by God for God. Right, And we know that God's goal for us, God's purpose for us is conformity to his nature. Now think of that. Because that also is a privilege. That God would want you to be conformed to his image, to his likeness. To the likeness of his son. So again, I'm saying all of this just to build up to what then is our identity. If we have been called by God, set apart by God, for God... And our purpose is conformity to his image, like conformity to Christ-likeness. What then is our identity? Before I jump into that, I do want to say that Paul actually uses the word saints a lot when he's addressing uh, in his letters, as you basically say. So I want to quickly uh, just go through two scriptures where he, he basically uses that word saints. And I want to draw a couple things from them. So the first one is Romans 1-7, and we have that up, where it says... To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, let me read that again. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, loved by God and are called, right, to be saints. In a sense, you could almost say our identity. You could almost summarize it in three words. We are loved, beloved. Called and saints. Right? So just looking at that. Now let me also go to another text. First Corinthians one two. And I actually find this one interesting. So first Corinthians one two, I believe that's up as well. Uh, Paul says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Right, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints. The interesting thing about this is in chapter 5, Paul would address the Corinthian church and the sexual immorality that is going on there. And he even goes on to say, what is going on in the church should not even be mentioned amongst pagans. But he starts out, though, by calling them saints. Right? It, it's not that Paul didn't know he was still going to deal with that issue. Right, of course he knew. Right, and it's not like Paul suddenly thinks, "Oh, there, oh, you know, there's purity in the church." No, but he, he is painting this vision for them to know who they are, so that that vision acts as a way of pulling them more and more towards God. Right, and that's what I find interesting about it. He has no illusions about the sexual purity in the current church, but he starts out by reminding them. Of who they are by reminding them of how God sees them. That they are beloved. And they are called to be saints. So let me say this loud and clear. And this is the main point that I want to make. And I do hope that you, you, you hold on to this. Your identity is not and it's never based on your moral uprightness. Right? Your identity is not based on your struggles. It's not based on your past your sins, the things you struggle with. 
that your identity, if you have truly put your faith in Christ Jesus, if I were to summarize it, I would say, you are a beloved child of God. That is who you are. That is who he has called you to be. A beloved child of God. And I'm getting this from all the texts we've written and just sort of trying to summarize it and put it in a way that it's easy to remember. That you are a beloved child of God. You are not your mistakes. Even though it doesn't excuse them, right? We make mistakes and we're aware of that. Right? You're not even what you do repeatedly. I know sometimes that's the idea that you are what you do repeatedly. No, not really. You are a beloved child of God. If you've put your faith in Christ Jesus. You are also not your habits, good or bad. Right? But you're also not your accomplishments or your accolades. Right? You're not the pride your parents get from you being a proper child, a star child. That, that's not who you are. Right? You're not the acknowledgement or the recognition that you crave or that you seek. Right? You're not your struggles. Definitely not your struggles. And you're not your, you know, what, what's the word? Idiosyncrasies, the things about us that are just kind of weird. Like, th- that's not who you are. <laughs> that's not who you are. Right? Um, you're not the unfortunate things that might have happened in the past. Right? Y- you're not defined by those goals you missed or the things you couldn't get a hold on. Right? That, that's not who you are. And you're definitely not your paycheck. Right? And, and there's a, it's a funny idea when we talk about people and we say their net worth is this. And we mention a number. Right? And we tie the value of people to money. <laughs> your net worth is this many millions or billions or whatever it is. Or in my case, well, let's not talk about that. But, <laughs> but your net worth, you are not your paycheck, right? You are not your net worth. So when we talk about identity and if we look at the ways we define ourselves, we usually fall into two traps. One is that positive identity trap, you could call it, in the sense of we define ourselves by the good things. Right, the things we like about ourselves, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a career person, or I'm doing great in this, or doing that, or I've always been this person, right? So something good, right? The other side is we usually define ourselves as well by uh, something negative that has happened, or some failure, or some you know, the fact that we missed out on some goal, or we missed out on something, right? The problem in looking at those two is that neither of them is sustainable. Right? If you go with the positive identity trap, we all know that life has its highs and its lows. What happens when you're riding high is it's great to define yourselves by those things. Right? Let's say by uh, your job or your career or accolades. But what happens when you don't have that? And it will happen. What happens when someone else is doing better? Which always happens. Right? And then what you see then is that we go into this spin basically. Right, and, and it has you know, massive negative consequences. And for the negative side where we define ourselves by uh, either the bad experiences we have or the fact that we missed out on certain things, uh, what happens is it, it almost becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy because that's all we focus on and that's all we can see about ourselves. Right? And again, they're, they're just massive consequences to these things. Right? I'm sure... You know, we always see this in our society, which is sad, 
where you see someone that, by all accounts, when you look at it from the outside, they're doing well. And then you hear one day that, oh, that person committed suicide, right? And the note that is usually left behind is describing their failures. And you're like, wait, 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 how? How are you a failure? Right? And that's why tying our identity to anything apart from God is just not good enough. It's not worthy, actually, of who God has created you to be. Right, so what I'm primarily saying here is that God is the primary actor in our lives. Right? He's actively working to bring us to himself. This is his purpose for us. And because of that, our identity is that we are beloved. Like we, you, me, all of us, we are beloved children of God. I do want to focus on another phrase in that text in verse 1. Yeah, and it's the phrase where it says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Right, and I want to focus on that phrase, in Christ. Right, so we just talked about what the word saints means. We are set apart for God by God. Right, uh, the faithful there connotes our uh, our growing relationship in God and who we have put our hope and our trust in. <coughs> Excuse me. So when it says to the faithful in Christ Jesus, yes, it's talking about who we have put our faith in, but. That phrase in Christ, given how often it appears, there is something more to it. Right? Uh, you would actually see that <clears throat> this features a lot, that phrase in Christ, or its equivalent. It features a lot in all of Paul's letters. So in the 13 letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, he actually uses that phrase, or its equivalent, 164 times. Right? Just in Ephesians chapter 1, where we are, if you go from verse 3 which is where we'll pick up the next time, to verse 14, he uses the phrase 10 times. Right, so th- there is something to that. So you, use, you look at that phrase or its equivalent, he uses it about 10 times actually. And I actually counted it. <laughs> I was going to show it, but I'm like, no, that's too much. <laughs> so he uses it 10 times. And so what he's doing is he's painting a picture to show who we are, to show our place. In Christ, that, that phrase, it's almost like describing uh, 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 the totality of who we are. It, it's, it's, it's saying that all of our existence and that which gives us meaning is found in him. Let me use an analogy to better explain. So just as a fish exists in water, right? And birds should exist in the air. At least that's where you see the beauty, Right of birth, so also uh, the beauty of who we are. Right, if you are to ever capture our essence and who we are made to be, it has to be in Christ. Right, which goes back to our identity being that we are beloved children of God. Right, so the language of that of that phrase in Christ actually expresses the purpose of God for us. We talked about how the purpose of God for us is our conformity into his image. Right? It's basically the same thing as this phrase in Christ. What it means is that God is after your union with himself. Right? So if you look at John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying for his disciples and also for everyone that would believe in him, including us, the theme of those prayers is this unity with God. 
And so there's also always this repetition of you in them and I in them and them in me. That this idea, this union, right, which is where God is taking us all. That that's the goal, that's the purpose. Right? And and so again the point of where I'm driving all of this is to again support that idea that your identity is that you are a beloved child of God. So now let me draw out a couple implications and then we'll jump into uh, the application. So the first implication I'm going to draw out is if God is truly the primary actor in our lives and if he has been drawing us to himself, if we will have him, uh, the first question we have to ask from our identity is, am I truly allowing Christ to be Lord of my life? Right, so that's the first question we have to ask and because we, we have to understand that while we truly all want salvation and forgiveness of sins and all of that, which is great, we have to understand that there is no true salvation without discipleship. Right? You, you aren't simply saved to exist by yourself and just be where you are. If you are saved, you are called to be saints, set apart by God for God. So the question we must be asking is, am I truly allowing Christ to be Lord in my life? Am I truly being an apprentice of Christ? And the key feature of that is knowing how curved in we are on ourselves is repentance, a consistent feature of my life. I mean, except you're saying you're perfect, which if you're perfect, I want to know you. (laughs) But how am I making room for God, for Christ to be my master? How am I developing rhythms that helps me be his apprentice? Right, so that's the first implication. The second implication, which is where we spend most of the time, is this question of who am I becoming? If my identity is a beloved child of God. Who am I becoming? Right, and so when you look at, and there will be a slide up there, when you look at how we define ourselves, we generally do so in three categories. Uh, one is what people say about us, or what we want people to say about us. Right. Uh, two is, I'm sorry I'm in the way, but hopefully you can see. <laughs> two is um, what we have or possess. Right, and then three deals with what we are doing, what we are currently engaged in. Right, and so the, the very next slide will show you setting things underneath that. So when we talk about what people are saying about us, what it really speaks to is our need or our hunger for acceptance, right, for, for recognition and for a stellar reputation. When we talk about what we have or possess, then we're speaking really for our need for comfort, for wealth for what we think is success, whatever we define, you know, however we define success, and just status. And then when we talk about what we are currently engaged in, or when we define ourselves by that, what we're speaking to is our need for significance. Right? So, so basically, we generally leave our lives under the burden and the weep of acceptance and recognition and significance and status and wealth and success, right? And, and those things are not necessarily bad, right? In and of themselves, it's not like they're bad, right? They, and this is the problem with them, is that they're actually good things. But then we sort of make them 
ultimate things or we make the or they take a place that they shouldn't take in our lives let me put it like that they don't necessarily have to be ultimate things but they take uh, a much higher priority than what they should in our lives right and, and so all those and, and these are just weights and in some cases they become idols right but, but the problem with them is there is no real long lasting satisfaction Right from these things, right, and quite frankly, the reward of attaining any one of these things is that you want more of it, right? You're basically when you attain any one of these things, the very next thing is for you to get, you know, to go higher. What's the next rung of the ladder, basically, in, in terms of these things? And, and so, uh, sometimes we, we try to manage this by saying things like, you know, celebrate your victories, which is a good thing. Celebrate your victories, right? But it doesn't mean you're not going to get back into the rat race. Right. If, if these things, if these motives, these factors, if that's what is pushing us or that's what is driving us. So yes, we get to one particular rung of the ladder and we celebrate that. But right after that, we get back into the rat race. Right. And, and that's the problem. Right. Because eventually it leads to a profound emptiness. And why? Why does it always lead to a profound emptiness? Because we are made for more. We are made for God. We are called by God, set apart by God for God. Right, so to, to be clear, again, it's not that these things are bad in and of themselves. I'm not saying be a bomb. Please walk out. <laughs> right? uh, but what I'm trying to say is that there is a, a certain place these things should have in our lives. And when it goes beyond that, it becomes these idols and these weights that keep pushing us. Right, so there's a quote there by St. Augustine that I love, and I'm sure you guys uh, know of it, where he says that, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in you. Right, and we all know this. There is this hole within our hearts, and uh, you know, as we push and as we run after things, those things are not just simply enough. They're not enough. Right? And so we keep running and we're in that rat race, right? But the, the key thing we miss in all of this, right, is, and I like to say this to myself because it makes me laugh at myself. There's this phrase that I use where it says, adventures in missing the point, right? Where, where I look at the things I run after, I'm like, yeah, I am definitely missing the point. Uh, but the more insidious thing is this. In pursuing these other things, in giving my life, my time, myself to these things, I am actually becoming the type of person that cannot be an apprentice of Christ. The more I give myself to these things, the more I pursue hard after these things, I am actually in that process becoming someone who will find it increasingly difficult to be an apprentice of Christ. So let me give an example and then I'll... Uh, I'll quote a scripture to support that. So let, let's take me as an example, right? Say I have this goal that I want to be a, a VP or attend some high role within my organization, right? Which means I'm going to be working a lot of crazy hours, generally. Let's say 60 plus hours a week, right? And let's say I get married and let's say my spouse or my wife also has that goal, that vision for herself. And let's say we have kids. Right. Now we might say, okay, what's the goal of our family? All right, we want to have a great home, a great marriage, and a great careers, you know, comfortable, all of that. Again, good things. 
right? Great things. Here's the problem, though. If my definition of a great home and a great marriage means I don't cheat on my spouse, we go on two or three expensive vacations a year, I take exotic pictures where I'm hanging or doing skydiving or something, and I post it on Instagram and social media, and we're all smiles and everybody's jumping up. It's like, oh, what a great family, right? And my kids are respectful to the neighbors and all of that. If that is my definition of a great family and a great home, I think, yeah, I can work 60 plus hours <laughs> a week or 70 plus hours, and yeah, that, that we, I can do that, right? That can be done. Right? But if my identity is to be a beloved child of God, right? If I am called by God and set apart by God for God, then that cannot be the definition of a great home and a great marriage. Right? Because where's the growth in Christ likeness? Right? Where's, where's the wrestling with our brokenness and actually giving our time to God and walking through the scripture with ourselves and our kids and actually growing, pointing to the sovereignty of God? Right? Where's the acknowledgement of our sins and the hard work of figuring things out and how to live with each other and forgiving one another? <clears throat> Where's the place of facing our need for God and examining our lives in light of the gospel? How do I train up a child to grow up in the way that he or she should go when I myself am not living that life? So if I am giving myself to 60 plus, 70 plus hours a week, I truly can maintain those goals. Something is going to give. Now, so remember I said that if if our lives has been solely driven by factors like you know, what people say about us, uh, what we have or possess, and what we are doing. So basically the, acception, the acceptance, sorry, the recognition, the status, uh, the reputation, things like that. If that is what's driving my life, I also said that in that process I am becoming someone that actually cannot be an apprentice of Christ. Now let, let me quote a scripture so that it doesn't seem like I'm just talking. So in Luke chapter 14... Uh, Luke chapter 14, and I'm just going to read this. Luke chapter 14, I'm going to read verses 26, 27, and 33. Uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 26, um, 27, and 33. And this is Jesus. And, And I want you to hear these chilling words of Christ. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me, excuse me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate what that means it does not prefer it does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple verse 27 whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple verse 33 so therefore Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Right, so first of all, you you could ask the question, why is Jesus talking about father, mother, and all of that, right? He's not saying you should literally hate your father. What he's trying to say is that I must be above them in terms of I being Christ, right? Like in priority, Christ must be above them as a way of life. Right. And what he's saying here, and the reason he's using the family unit, actually, in, in that passage is that in, in, in those times, the most important thing was your family. 
it wasn't your career, it wasn't all those things. It was your family, right? That's why he's using that. So for us, obviously, it would be like Jesus is saying, if you do not prefer me above your career, your goals, your self-fulfillment, self-actualization, all those things, you cannot be a disciple. And it's not like Jesus is saying, I'm going to prevent you from being my disciple. What he is saying is that by virtue of you making those things of higher priority, you will not be able to give them up for my sake. When, when the robber meets the road, right? If, if my goal or what I'm being driven by is success and wealth and comfort, right? Then honestly, when it comes to performance reviews, right? I work, I'm going to, you know, cut corners and try to make sure I get promoted all the time. And in that process, in that process, I am becoming the type of person that is willing to step over others to get to where I want. In that process, I am becoming the type of person that is increasingly being curved in on himself. The more I do that, the more I basically see people as chess pieces to get to where I want to be. And hopefully you're seeing that trend of selfishness. And how I am primarily my goal, right? My goal is myself, basically, right? And I'm living simply for that and how I get to the next rung in the ladder. So what Christ is basically saying is that in this process of pursuing these other things, we actually, unfortunately, sometimes unknowingly, are becoming the type of person that cannot actually be an apprentice of Christ. And so the question again is, who am I becoming? When I look at the trajectory of my life and the decisions I am making, in light of who God has called me to be, who am I becoming? How am I positioning myself and who am I becoming in that process? Lastly, I want to talk about the implication of purpose. And I've talked about purpose quite a bit, right? And so I'm going to be short. Again, in light of our identity, what then is our purpose? Right? So in, in the secular world, generally, we'd say, this is how you find your purpose. You know, look at your talent. Look at what annoys you. <laughs> look at the needs of the community. And somewhere there, there's that confluence that speaks to your purpose. And that's your purpose, right? And that's what you should strive after. And there's also this idea that once you find your purpose and you're living in it, then you would have this great fulfillment, right? So I'm going to use an example, and you would be the judge. So let's use Paul as an example, the apostle, right? So when, when we start out with Paul, if you look at his background, he's a Jew, right? But he's also a Roman citizen, which tells you something that he probably comes from a middle-class family, maybe wealthy, right? He's highly educated, Right, studying under Gamaliel, right? Highly, highly educated. Right, so when you look at all of that background, and by the way, he actually speaks a couple languages. So Greek, Aramaic, probably some Hebrew, right? And some Latin as well. So you, you can already see the type of person Paul is, right? So now, go with me with that idea, right? Talent, purpose, right? What's his talent? You could say he's a gifted speaker, he's obviously an intellectual giant when you look at how he thinks. Right, his passion, you could say, is the, the law of God. Right, so the natural purpose of Paul would actually be be a Pharisee. That would be the natural outflow, which is what he was pursuing, being a Pharisee. But that wasn't what God had in mind for him. Right, that that wasn't what God had in mind for him. 
Now, when you look at Paul and you look at his end, what, what could you say about Paul? Okay, so he's, you know, shouting about this new cult, this new religion called Christianity, because that's what it was at that time, something new, right? Um, he basically goes from someone that is highly educated to someone that is beaten, imprisoned. He's basically living like a vagabond, right? He has no goals, essentially. Paul, what are your five-year goals? Yeah, I'm just an apostle to the Gentile, right? Sent by God to the Gentile. No long-term goals as well. Right, no retirement fund for sure. <laughs> right, and when he's in prison, right, when he's in prison, instead of Paul to be thinking about how do I get out of prison, how do I get my life together, how do I plan for retirement and all of that, what he's thinking about instead, though, is God and how does he push the gospel. Right, and, and Paul, we know actually through some of his. John is that he actually starts uh, tent making as a way to support himself. So you look at Paul, you look at all the education that went into Paul. All that he is, a Jew, who is also a Roman citizen. And you know Jews at that time were second class citizens. But he's also actually a Roman citizen. Which shows you again something about him. And his end is what? To be a tent maker. Running around, being beaten, stoned, imprisoned. And instead of trying to get out, he's writing some letter about some new religion somewhere. So you would see that the way we usually define purpose, right, is probably not how God sees it. Now, don't get me wrong. Please have retirement funds. Work hard. <laughs> I'm not saying don't do any of those things. What I'm trying to get at, though, is that your purpose is not what you do. Your purpose isn't... It, it's not even about anything you do, honestly. It, it's not about your career. It's not about any of those things. Right? So first and foremost, your purpose is actually more about who you are becoming rather than what you are doing. Right? What God gets out of your life, frankly, what anybody else gets out of your life is who you are becoming. Not not what you are doing or a position you hold. And secondly, this is your purpose. If you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Christ Jesus, your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Said another way, your purpose is to be conformed to the nature of Christ. That's your purpose. There's nothing else. And quite frankly, nothing else makes sense. So, those are the three implications. Let me quickly talk about two applications and then we'll wrap up. So, in light of what we've said and some of the implications we've drawn, right, is Christ Lord of your life? Um, Who are you becoming? And the idea of purpose. What then can we do? Obviously, we have a lot of soul searching to do in looking at those three things, right, and trying to ponder some of those questions. But then the, the, the question here is what can we do practically? So I want to quickly offer two things we can do. First is I want us to learn to borrow an eternal perspective. Right? In looking at life and in looking at our identity, uh, my hope is that we become the types of people that always looks at things from the lens of the sovereignty of God. Right? By this, what I mean is that since God is sovereign, we train ourselves over time to see every situation as an opportunity to become more Christ-like. 
Our decision making has at its core the sense of who am I becoming. So when I'm faced with, let's say I'm faced with a couple job opportunities, I should be thinking about if I take job A, who am I going to become in that process versus job B, right? Having some of those things in our mind, right? Our definition of success must transcend what we usually hear. You know, success is, um, you know, you living the life you deserve or something like that, right? And it must always come back to the idea of being conformed to the nature of God. The second practical thing is that we need to slow down more. Right, we we just have to slow down more, especially in this area. Right, so uh, there's a quote up there by Richard Forster in Celebration of Disciplines, where he says, "In contemporary society, our adversary majors in three things: noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied." What we face in this era. Uh, maybe more so than any era, it's just distractions, right? They're just distractions everywhere, right? I can get on my phone and in an hour, I'm like, what exactly have I done in the past hour? Nothing, <laughs> just checking my phone. I can check WhatsApp right now and I tell you in 30 seconds, I'm going to check it again with no real intent. It's almost like I've just programmed myself to be doing that, right? Distractions. Now, the problem with this is when we don't slow down and reflect, Remember what we said earlier about how in pursuing all the things we sometimes become people who cannot be apprentices of Christ? You actually don't notice that. Right? You just keep going and going and going until something major happens, like a health scare. Right? You just keep running and pushing. Right? And so without slowing down, we don't see how we become so curved in on ourselves and how God is no longer at the center of our lives. So what, what then can we do? So in a sense, we are speed addicts. You can look at it like that. We're very much addicted to speed and getting things quickly. What's next? Where are we going? Right. And, and so what can we do? So I have a homework, which is in your handout. Um, and the idea is to take 30 minutes a day. Right. If you can do it consistently through the week, it will be great. I must confess I didn't do mine last week. I did some. It was refreshing, but I didn't do it every day. Um, but every time I did it, I'm just like, I need to do this more. Right, so take some time out, solitude and silence. What I mean by that is find a place to be where the noise level in your life is reduced, right, where you can just simply be. And while you're there, you could look at some of these questions, and again, they're in your handout. So, for example, when you look back on the past 12 to 24 months of your life, uh, what do the following factors say about how you define yourself? And the factors I'm talking about is what people say about you or what you want people to say about you. Um, your motivations, um, your goals, what you spend most of your time on. You know, another question we could think about is, who am I becoming? When I look at the current way my life is ordered, who am I becoming in that process? Right? And then lastly, just pick a scripture like Psalm 139. It could be Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, John 17. And just use that to meditate on who God has called you to be. Right, and you know, when you do all that, just you know, write something about that in a journal and pray about it, and let that be almost like a, a, a rhythm of your life that you can do every now and then. And hopefully, my hope, my prayer is that through all of that, you begin to see more and more, and begin to own more and more that you are a beloved child of God. Amen.
uh, time is gone, so we will not do the practice, but can do the homework. Um, let's pray. So, Father, thank you so much for your mercy, for your grace, for your for the fact that you, you in your mercy, you love us so much that you've called us, you've set us apart for by yourself and for yourself, right, that we are beloved children of the Most High God. My prayer, God, is that you would help us live more into this. You would help us own this. You would help us be settled in this. You would help us realize that if we are your beloved children, and if you are truly sovereign and all-powerful, then nothing is beyond your reach. No situation is beyond your hand and your grace. And that we're able to live more into that. We're able to be more settled into that. And that through that, that we are continually pulled towards you, continually pulled towards transformation into Christ-likeness, this conformity to your nature. In Jesus' name, amen.